Hey there, everybody. This is Sean King with My Youth on Record. Today, we're speaking with Sonny Jane of the band Red Barat. Hope you enjoy. All hell broke loose, and then I kind of calmed him down and said, listen, just give me a year to do this so I can figure it out. Basically, for the next 10 years, I would constantly question whether I was up to this and if I could do this. Welcome to My Youth on Record, a podcast where musicians share the music they created as teens and the stories behind their songs. My name is Mona, and I'm super excited to be joining Sean King as your co-host for another season of My Youth on Record. Sonny Jane, an acclaimed drummer and composer, is most recently known for his work in the band Red Barat. He took the time to join us for a remote interview to discuss what it was that sparked his passion for the drums at age 10 and what he did to keep it going. Right on. Well, Sonny, hey, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been a huge fan of your band, Red Barat, and I know you guys have some uh, really really interesting origins and that's really what this show is about my youth on record is basically talking about the early times the early inspirations the early mentors you had so can you just tell us just like right from the beginning like what's the what's the kind of first passionate moments you had around music man yeah that's that's a that's an easy one i i remember when i was 4 years old I was in the uh, living room with my family, with uh, my father, my mother, my brother, my sister in Rochester, New York. And there was some bhajan playing, some like Indian devotional song. I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was uh, there was tabla in it. And uh, tabla, like the North Indian hand drums, finger drums. And um, I just remember being moved by the sound and the rhythm. And uh, perhaps when I was six is when I first heard Zakir Hussain with uh, Ravi Shankar on a, on a vinyl that my dad had. My dad was like a huge music enthusiast and uh, would have stuff on his reel-to-reel and his vinyl and his Super 8 and everything. Um, but those were kind of the first pivotal moments of, of me just hearing rhythm and just being, being drawn to rhythm. Like I knew at that age I wanted to play drums. Um, I just, whatever for whatever reason, I didn't start studying drums until I was 10. And uh, that, was that your first instrument? Uh, it was not. <laughs> I, had to, I had to play violin when I was in fourth grade just because uh, they offered an instrument when you were fourth grade in school. So I was nine years old. My brother and sister had played violin previous, so uh, my dad make me, made me play that. I was horrible at it. I remember getting a D for disgrace by the violin teacher. <laughs> and uh, I, just, I just vaguely remember reading the notes. So I don't know how I did this, but I didn't understand that you had to read the notes where they were placed on the staff, I was trying to read it where the uh, the stem was ending, and and it was so difficult for me, and I just didn't know what I was doing, um, and so I just would skip my lessons. I would just never go to my lessons in school. I just tell my other friends like, tell her I'm not here, like tell her I'm sick, and obviously she would come to the class and find me there. Um, but yeah, after after that year ended and fifth grade started up, they they offered drums and saxophones. You know, you're a little bit taller in stature and, and, and they'll give you the bigger instruments at that point. And the teachers tried to put me on tenor sax, but, uh, I took it home for a week and 
you know, just to just to oblige them and uh, brought it right back and said, nope, want to play drums. And how did that, was there a moment of feeling like, yes, this is my instrument or this is what I want to do, move forward with versus these other instruments? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew it like when I was, when I was very young and I just had never known that you could ask, I guess, to take lessons or play drums and there just weren't drums around my house necessarily. So right when I started playing when I was 10, I knew, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. Like there was no question really ever when I started playing drums that, uh, that I wanted to turn back. I remember walking into my first lesson, um, my drum teacher from age 10 to 18, um, was Rich Thompson, who's now a, a music teacher at Eastman School of Music back up in Rochester. Um, but he was a bebop jazz drummer and it's kind of why I got involved in jazz. But I remember going into the first lesson and he was just playing a press roll and it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. I was like, man, you could do that on the snare drum. Like it just sounded like a piece of paper ripping perfectly, giving this perfect sound for like 30 seconds. And, uh, I was just floored by, by, by his press roll and, and yeah, I never really turned back at that point. Just knew I always wanted to do drums. Yeah, I've always been a fan of how symphonic players can do that. Um, so taking us back, uh, I know there was devotional music in your life, and uh, suddenly you became a Rush fan. Can you talk about how rock started to permeate your life? It just, you know, I'd say, I'd say most of the Western stuff came from my brother and my sister. Most, mostly my brother. My brother, um, you know, he excelled actually at music as well. He was he was an amazing violin player and guitarist. He could pick up anything by ear. He was like learning all the guitar gods solos, like the Eddie Van Halen, the Satriani, the Ingve Malmsteen, like all that stuff. Um, so he was three. He's three years older than me. So I would come home from school before he would, and I would dive in his room and just like look through his vinyl collection and just pull out stuff that looked cool. You know, like back in the days when you could pick up something and like you wanted to put it on because the cover looked really cool or the back looked cool. And I picked up uh, a show of hands, Rush's A Show of Hands. And, you know, I scattered through like the the titles and saw a thing called Rhythm Method. And since I was a drummer, I was like, okay, I'm going to put on Rhythm Method. And it was a Neil Peart drum solo. And yeah, that was my first introduction to Rush. And then I started going back, listening to their music and was like, super into the prog rock of it and just the odd meters. It was stuff I'd never heard before in that setting of rock and roll. Uh, growing up in Rochester, you got classic rock all over the place. You know, you got the dock in, you got the the sticks, uh, or, or rather Kiss and and Led Zeppelin and, and Judas Priest, everything. Everything was there on the radio, but I'd never heard anything like Rush, like the prog rock mentality of it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I was just getting a bunch of varied music from my brother. I mean, he had stuff from... <laughs> He had anything from Ice T to Rick Astley um, to Miles Davis to like I don't know Bach. You know, it's like he he had everything and anything. He was he had a very eclectic music taste, um, and that definitely filtered down to me as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's what, one thing unique to what you're saying um, compared to 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 what some of the other people we've talked to have said is that it sounds like you had a mentor for a long stretch of time. From like you said, from ten years old. Yeah. Um, yeah, ten to eighteen. Yeah, that, that's a that's probably like the longest um, mentor situation that we've heard about. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I uh, I got I got super lucky. Uh, Rich Thompson was my public school teacher, and then also became my private teacher. And it just so happened that he kept moving through the Russian area to school system 
uh, from from elementary school to middle school to high school, like pretty much the same time I was. Um, I, I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think he was just getting promoted into other positions. So because of that, I was seeing him regularly in school and then I was studying with him privately, like every two weeks I was taking a private lesson. Um, but he was my jazz band director. He was my middle school band director. He was my private teacher, my public teacher in school. So I had a lot of time with him. Um, and when I went to him, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to learn Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen and Rush and Bonham and all that kind of stuff. And he said, yeah, that's cool. Like I'll teach you that stuff. But first I want you to learn these four rhythms. And he gave me like a swing, gave me some Dave Garibaldi funk pattern. He gave me a bossa nova and he gave me a samba. And he sent me home and I had no idea what any of this stuff was. Sent me home with some, you know, some records and whatnot or some cassette tapes rather of these recordings. And I was only motivated to learn them because I couldn't play them. And I just wanted to be able to play anything and everything I possibly could on my drum set. Um, and I think for the first two years of, you know, so he was a bebop jazz drummer. And the first two years of kind of falling into it was, was strictly only motivated by the rhythm, um, the complexity of it, and just the unknown of it for me. The music, the jazz music part didn't really start, you know, I, I didn't really start having an affinity for it until maybe I was 14. You know, it took a few years. I remember the first time I actually listened to Kind of Blue and went back to Rich and I was like, man, I don't get it. Like, I'm not into this album. Like, I just don't get it. <laughs> kind of Blue, Miles Davis album, like the most pivotal, one of the most pivotal jazz albums. Um, took me some years to kind of understand what that was all about. But um, yeah, I was I was lucky. Rich was... Rich opened me up to the jazz masters and the the language and the vocabulary of of Max Roach, Art Blakey, um, Felicio Jones, and then you know eventually Tony Williams, Elvin Jones. Everything uh, gave me the foundation for improvisation. He, he he gave me a lot of just in terms of trying to find out what your voice is, you know. And then it was just it was just became more enhanced when I went to college and, and had the, the other teachers that kind of fostered that, that, that idea. One of the challenges to attending art school for Sunny was finding other people from the South Asian community. From this challenge came his first song. Let's find out more about that experience, as well as the unique path leading him to pursue a career as a drummer. If we were to cut to some of your early audio right now, if you were able to provide us with something, do you think you could set up? Yeah. Do you think you could set up like what what we would listen to? Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I have. I'd love to send. I got to find out if I have this one CD of my recital, my my college recital, because I played a song in there. It was the very first song I wrote, and it was called Washy Wish, and it was. It was kind of going off a Mingus vibe. I was really into Mingus at the time, but also going into some other kind of odd meters, metric modulation stuff. Um, and it was the first song I wrote because I was I was up in the piano room and I went downstairs in the music hall and, and in the auditorium down there, there was a huge Indian event happening. Um, I think at the volley event or something. I can't remember what it was, but uh, I remember hanging out there just like, oh, maybe I'll meet someone, you know? Um and in college, I was, I was very much like not part of the South Asian scene. The South Asian scene at Rutgers University was on a whole different campus. And I was at the, I was on the art campus. 
uh, Mason Grove School of the Arts. So I was just mixed up with everyone, but I was like the only South Asian around really um, in, 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 in my section of music rather that is. So I was down there hoping I'd meet some other South Asians and you know try and make some friendships, some inroads into that community. And I must've sat down there for like 30 minutes. I didn't talk to anyone, no one talked to me. <laughs> then I just went up back to the practice room with like my tail between the legs, just feeling sorry for myself. I was like, man, I can never meet anyone. Like I'm just playing jazz music. Like what Indian <laughs> guy plays jazz music? And like, <laughs> like I should be over on Bush campus studying science or math, you know, so I can meet some people like this sucks. Um, and then I just sat down and I started writing and I wrote this song and I called it a washy wish. Like I, you know, I had no real desire to become a scientist or, or anything per se. Uh, I, I loved music, but it was just this longing for my community and, and longing to find other South Asians that were in the creative field, um, if not also, you know, jazz. That's interesting. At what point was it when you realized that you wanted to pursue music? Because I feel like uh, early on when it's in school, like everything else, it's um, elementary school, they're I don't know too many people who identify like their career path um, until like a little bit later. When did you, because you obviously pursued it in college, when, what moment was that and what was that like? How did that feel? So it's an interesting, it's an interesting question and and it's a question that I've, I've come to, I've come back and forth to it probably from the age of 16 to about 30. (laughs) where I was like, do I want to do this? Can I do this? Um, I, I, I knew I wanted to study music in college when I was 16. I knew that was the path I wanted to take. But I was also facing uh, my folks just not wanting me to do this. You know, my, my older brother, and my brother wanted to actually study music as well in college. And they were like, nope, you're not, you're not doing that. You're doing, uh, you're doing biomedical engineering and you're going to Hopkins and that's that. So his whole thing was squashed. Um, my sister became a doctor. They kind of loosened up the reins on me. Um, but I had to do a double major of math and music when I first went. Um, and I didn't actually tell them until two weeks that I was going to Rutgers that I actually was going to the, to the art school, Mason Grove School of the Arts. They thought I was just going to the, the bigger Rutgers college where you had to do 40 credits in music and the rest are open to math and computer science and whatnot. And I was like, no, I'm going to Mason Grove School of the Arts. It's like a hundred credits in music and I only have like 30 credits of electives. Um, all hell broke loose. And then I kind of calmed him down and said, listen, just give me a year to do this so I can figure it out. Basically for the next 10 years, I would constantly question whether I was up to this and if I could do this. Um, I think it was, it was, it was definitely the family cultural guilt of, of feeling like I should be doing something else. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't say my parents or my family weren't supportive uh, it's just, it was completely unknown to them. There was no one that comes from music in, in my, in my family. So they had no idea what I was doing and I really had no idea what I was doing. And so I'd question my, my confidence in, in being able to do this path in music, you know? And I think part of it, because I, I didn't really know anything about it was a, was a blessing in disguise. You know, I, I didn't really get scared by it. I was just like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Whatever. I'm going to do it. Um, and even at one point when I was 27, and so, okay, so at this point, I was, I'm 24. I graduated uh, from NYU, did a master's degree, and I'm out touring with Kyle Eastwood, bass player, jazz bass player. You know, I'm, I'm 
traveling all over Europe, playing like these amazing festivals, like out maybe three to five months a year, uh, making, making good money and, and enjoying my life. But every time I'd come home, my mom would ask me, Hey, yeah, that's great. Wherever you went, but how much money did you make? Like, are you okay with money? And so it's still, it was still constantly just in my head. Like, am I okay with money? Like, I, I think I am. I think everything's fine. Um, but at that point I still ended up taking the LSATs and applying to law school and got into a couple of law schools and I waited to the last day to accept my, my, my chair at, a it was either Brooklyn college or Fordham. I can't remember which law school it was, but I remember waiting till the very last day and it was a game I was playing with myself to find out what my destiny was. You know, if I basically called him up the next day after I was supposed to accept my seat, said, Hey, I've been away. I just got this letter but I wanted to come to law school and just wanted to see if the seat was still available. They said, no, you have to apply next year. The cutoff was yesterday and now all the seats are filled. So I was like, okay, no problem. Thanks a lot. I got off the phone and that was finally at that point where I was like, okay, listen, I got to accept that I've been bit by this bug and this is what I'm supposed to do for better, for worse. Even when times are tough, this is what I'm going to do. I think I carried on like that for the next three years. And by the time I was 30, I was just, I just stopped looking back. Um, I think at that point, things were moving, moving in the right direction for me. You know, it wasn't such extremes of hand in mouth, you know, and then having an awesome gig for a month and making a bunch of money and then also being dry for three months and just like trying to figure out like, oh man, what am I going to do? Um, it finally got to a level where I, I could envision the next several years ahead of me, you know? Just curious about like, uh, how what it must have been like for your parents like when you actually started when you were going to form a band around the dole and use that as like the main instrument was there kind of what, what did that make them think when you were like moving away from a jazz drum kit to a more traditional indian instrument um i i, I don't know that they i don't know if there was a strong reaction to it per se um, in terms of like, oh, wow, this is cool. Or I don't know. I, th- I think partly because the red barat thing with the dole, although it's a traditional Indian instrument, there was still elements of improvisation or jazz to them. Although it was, it was definitely more accessible than the stuff I was doing before and the stuff I was releasing that was very much just in the jazz vein. But I think they always knew, like even my previous recordings, I was really bringing various elements together, like my, my Punjabi background and and the Jane devotional songs, like all that stuff was coming into play. And I was, and I was touring India with my, with my jazz quartet and, and, you know, back in the early 2000s. So they kind of saw, saw what I was doing with music already. Um, so I think the transition to just me playing a different instrument wasn't necessarily a huge deal to them. Um, they enjoyed the groups I was playing before, but you know, they definitely enjoyed Red Barat when they would come to shows and whatnot, or they still come to shows or, you know, um, but I'd, I'd say the first concert they atten- attended, they were like, wow, this is really cool. And I think more it was because there was just a ton of people there. <laughs> you know, it was just like, wait, there's way more people here than there are at your jazz shows. <laughs> um, so I, th- I, think, I think they appreciate it for that reason. But, but in terms of just the, you know, the idea of playing a, a more Indian traditional instrument, you know, I, I, I was always playing tabla before. They knew I had an interest in all that. Um, and my dad was actually with me when I bought the dole back in India. So um, there wasn't, there wasn't necessarily a huge thing, you know? Yeah. And when you first 
So when you were playing music in elementary through high school, was that more or less just so you would be a well-rounded person? Uh, like the in, the supporting of that from your family. And maybe not necessarily for your own self-perspective, but like with your parents supporting it. So it seemed like there was a little bit of resistance when you wanted to pursue it as a career, which is interesting since you had spent so much time, like 10 years uh, practicing it. Because it, it makes sense. It makes sense that you would have like pursued that yeah. to me. Totally. And, and, and I think in retrospect, they probably realized that eventually. I think when I first said that, when I was 16, 17, applying to colleges, I guess maybe they just didn't realize it. And they'd already squashed my brother, who also spent a lot of time with violin and guitar. Um, I think maybe they just assumed like, yeah, you're doing this. It's great. But you're not doing this for a career. Like no one does that. Like you're going to become a doctor or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, they didn't, they didn't necessarily discourage me. I, th- I think it only came to head when it was, when it was college time, you know, otherwise, yeah, they were supportive. Like they were at every single concert of mine. They drove me around to like all the all state and all County stuff, like hours away. My dad, I think at one point was working at university of Pittsburgh when I was still in Rochester with my mom so my mom drove me and my like three friends down for the Allstate concert in Concord, New York, which was like three hours away. And my dad drove from Pittsburgh that night to see the concert and then drove back home like that night. So that's how, that's how devoted they were to come to every single, even baseball game. Like they were practically at every baseball game, summer league, and also during high school. Yeah, they're every concert. Um, but I think, yeah, when it came time to be like, Hey, I want to do this for a living. They're like, Oh, hell no. Like, can't yeah. do this for a living. <laughs> so jumping, jumping around the timeline a little bit, how, how yeah. would you react? How would you react if your girls as a dad now, how would you react if they were like, we want to be jazz musicians? I'd say hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no just playing. Real talk. <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, they're only five, but. Yeah, I want to support whatever and anything they want to do. Um, I don't, I don't push music down, you know, down their throats or everything. Like I play music a lot at home, and I sing and I dance with them. And and if they want to go downstairs in the cellar and jam on the drums, we'll do that every now and then. But um, I don't like teach them lessons. And partly, I guess it's because the way I grew up, I grew up with, I grew up with music in the home, and I grew up with it at at pujas like Jane prayers and uh, like ceremonies and whatnot. And so I came to it that way and, and then eventually started studying when I was, when I was 10. But um, yeah, no, I, I kind of, I tell them like, do what you love to do. And I try and reinforce that with whatever that they're doing. Sonny closes this interview with advice he'd give to his younger self. And of course, advice for you. Let's take a listen. So you've had all this experience, you've had a struggle with being financially sound along the way and questioning where you wanted to be, how you're going to get there, um, what it means as far as a career goes. If you could, if you could look back and tell the, the Sonny of 15 years old, a little, little tidbit of advice, what do you think that would be? Hmm. Um, probably just a trust trust yourself more. I'd, I'd say that was the, the one thing I, I, 
I still lack. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I think as artists, we all share that, that level of insecurity. Um, and I, I mean, I think everyone has a level of insecurity, but I think artists a little bit more because you're putting yourself and your emotions out there to be judged to a certain degree. Um, and, and you have to be very strong to just kind of not care about it, um, to stay true to, to whatever it is that you want to do, to not fall to the commercial idea of what it is, to not be hurt by the criticisms, um, to really trust in, in your vision and your ideas of what you want to set forward. Um, I'd say, I'd say that's, that's one of the main things because I was just constantly going back and forth, like questioning, oh, should I be doing this? Should I not? Should I be doing this? Should I not? Um, I wish I had a lot more confidence and, and trust in myself back then. Do you think the 15-year-old you would have seen future you being a band leader? No, not at all. Like, I think, I think the, my, my, my main goal when I was in college and even when I first moved to New York, like I wanted to be I wanted to be one of those jazz cats. I wanted to be that jazz drummer. I wanted to be that Lewis Nash, that Victor Lewis. I wanted to be that guy that everyone called, that Ben Riley, you know? And I was trying to set my path on that. Um, and then I just kind of diverged for, for reasons. But, but yeah, I just diverged. And, uh, and then it became very interesting for me to kind of all of a sudden be this dole player and you know, meet people that had no idea that I had this life before and not know me as all as a jazz drummer. My whole, my whole identity just got mixed up and, and it was really confusing for me. I was like, man, this is strange. Like no one has any idea like the stuff that I used to do. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm just some dole player now. Yeah, man. And that's how, that's how I've known you as the leader of this full-blown party band. Can you give our listeners a brief history of how Red Barat started? Yeah, um... The, the quick is the quick one is is basically it started at my wedding in 2005 um so a barat is like a procession that happens in India from one side to the other side and typically it's from a groom side to a bride side but I say it's from either partner to either partner side nowadays um and it involves singing and dancing it involves brass bands and dole playing and so for my wedding, I had transcribed a bunch of Bharat music and Punjabi music, and I wrote some some of my music for the ceremony. And I'd say like 75% of my friends are musicians. So I had like 30 Sorry of my friends that. bring me in. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had like 30 of my friends kind of bring me in um, for my Barat in 2005. And basically like after that happened, I started just getting calls because people found out there was a Barat band in, in New York. And I, I, I ended up booking like, I don't know, maybe five or six shows the next or five or six weddings rather, um, the next season. And, and during that year, I was also doing research and kind of realized that there was no Barat band really of significance in, in all the United States. Like there was some in Canada, some in Toronto. There's there's definitely some in London and there are a dime a dozen in India. And so I developed a Barat band that I originally called Red, Mar- Red Barat Marching Band. And I hit the wedding scene and I did that for three years. I was doing like 40 weddings a year. Um, and then eventually I was like, man, I need to make this into like a proper, proper band, you know? And uh, I added a stationary drum set to it. 
um, slightly different instrumentation than what I was doing at the weddings and, um, and then launched Red Barat in like 2008. That's fascinating. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's such a fun band to see live and it's, it's really important to know the story of how it was kind of unexpected. Uh, It's like, uh, not, not exactly what you set out to do. And with that in mind, in this, like, in this current bizarre music economy that we have going on, Mm-hmm. Let's say let's say there's a freshman in high school working on their music and knowing that knowing that within the next 4 years music economy music in general is just going to change is there any kind of like is there any kind of uh, advice you would give knowing knowing the absurdity of your career is there any <laughs> advice you could give to that artist I, I would say it's the same thing that I told myself when I, if, if I was 15, if I met the 15-year-old. It's like trust in yourself and, and do what you love to do. It's what I tell my girls also. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but it's it's just unfortunately so true. You know, I, I didn't, I mean, you're absolutely right. I didn't set out to to, to make this band. Um, I'm I'm fortunate that that it's it's gained some some level of success. Um and 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 then there's business that comes behind that, but from the onset, it, it came from the passion and and the idea and the creative like momentum of wanting to do something. Um, you know, it's so easy, especially nowadays with with Instagram and YouTube channels and everyone just kind of doing stuff for for your phone um, and having a career just via your phone versus playing a live show um, that you can get sidetracked and think that you're supposed to do you know X, Y, and Z. And I don't know. I mean, I just I just can't really find any truth in that because I, th- I think this is, I think this is perhaps temporary. You know, I, I can't imagine that we're only going to connect that way as human beings. You know, maybe, maybe we'll connect just looking at the screen, but you're still going to want to see a live show on your screen, you know, and, and maybe tap into uh, a Skype session where you're watching a live show with like a hundred other people that are sitting at home, but you're at least doing it together. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's like, there's still this idea of, something that's happening in the moment that's a human experience um and i would just say yeah just just trust in the music that you're making and don't try and be whatever is current or hip right now you know just just go for what you need to go for i love that yeah i really um i feel like your story is super compelling because I think a lot of the students here at Youth on Record, um, there's a lot of pressure to conform to pop culture. Whereas your story kind of offers this other perspective that like you could embrace the cultures that you come from and that could actually be your strength. You could actually find like your niche and success within um, honoring like who you are and what you are and that you don't have to, that you could, but like that both are valid. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think even nowadays it's like it's so much easier to to follow what your sound is or your idea of 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 art and and still exist and and have a successful career. You know, when you start entering the commercial or pop realm, that's a complete that's like that's not really music or art at that point. You know, there's there's a whole different business and machine behind it that it makes it entertainment. And and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not I'm not dissing that that industry at all it's just it's it's very different than being able to produce your art um and being able to be successful by by putting it out you know in in any means that you want and and having a very 
viable career where you can feed yourself and, and have a nice life and enjoy things. But once you start thinking you want to be a pop star, you know, that's, there, there's no rocket ship, first of all. And, and then once you get into that, that, that path, it's the whole, the whole idea of music gets stripped away. It's very much becomes something else. Um, it's, it becomes the selling of music. It becomes this commodity that you're giving to people to consume. And again, I'm not saying that it's bad, you know, it's, it's fun to do gigs like those every now and then, you know, it's just because it's a whole different world. But, um, for people that are starting out, I don't think it makes any sense to try and pursue that world only. Yeah. Easy to agree with that. Uh, we would love to have you come by next time you're in town. It'd be great if you could visit the studio. I think, um, I think the kids would learn, yeah. a, learn a lot from hearing more. Does that mean you're going to be going on tour with this next record yeah. or? Uh, oh, with the Smithsonian one? Yeah. Or yeah, the Smith yeah I, I should be, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking to maybe just do 20, 30 shows a year with that. Um, do you have a release date yet? Uh, it's February 21st, 2020. Cool, man. Yeah. Mona, I think we're probably good. I think we're good. Thank you so much. I appreciate cool. uh, hearing your story. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. My Youth on Record is proudly brought to you by Youth on Record, a Colorado nonprofit organization where local teens are empowered to find their voice and value by working with local musicians as their educators. Teens and Youth on Records programs are working to be both the next generation of creatives as well as community leaders. They do this through music, poetry, and storytelling. My Youth on Record is one of their newest programs. Learn more at www.youthonrecord.org. A big shout out to Oso Motley for our theme music this season. They came to the studio in Denver, jammed with some of the Youth on Record students, and we couldn't be happier. Thanks so much. 